Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, so regulatory is kind of a big deal, especially for medical device companies. Big shocker, right? Having a good understanding of regulations, regulatory strategy, things of that nature are very, very important to the success of your product in the marketplace. And you know, while I think this is true for companies of any shape and size, I think it's really, really important for startup companies to get a good foundation from a regulatory perspective because it will be instrumental in helping you with fundraising and and increasing the value of your product and your company, and then ultimately success in the marketplace. So I had a really great conversation with Isabella Schmidt. She is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. It's a challenging world in this medical device industry, and uh, I don't know, I think we're all, regardless of the shape and size of your company, we all have things that we need to deal with. And while this topic today might skew a little bit more to the startup or the small uh, company, I think there's going to be a lot of tips and pointers that we talk about today that are still applicable regardless of shape and size of your company. So joining me today is a, a... a newer but reoccurring guest that uh, we have on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Isabella Schmidt from Proxima Clinical Research. Isabella, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. You got it. So I know that Proxima Clinical Research, I mean, you do a lot of work with companies of all shapes and sizes. And um, not that the name's a misnomer, I know you do a ton of work in clinical research, but you do a ton of work in regulatory as well, right? Um, we have a lot of regulatory clients. Um, they kind of span from really early stage to um, publicly traded companies. So it's a wide range of companies. Um, and obviously, yeah, we do clinical as well. And for uh, a layperson or somebody that might be newer to the medical device industry, you may be scratching your head wondering why a quality and regulatory nerd, that's me, and a regulatory nerd uh, such as Isabella are here talking about business advice for startups. But folks, I've got to tell you that this understanding your regulatory pathway and all the, the different nuances that are around it it's really important to you growing your business. And I thought we could dive into some of these things uh, with Isabella today. So um, let's just dive right in. So let's talk about the, the thing that happens a lot where somebody invents something or comes up with this wonderful idea for some new technology or gadget. Um, what are some of the challenges that you've seen there? Yeah, so sometimes when companies start off with the technology rather than the problem, um, so, you know, you can start a company two ways. Oh, I have this problem and then I'm finding a technology to solve that problem or that's a solution for that problem. Or you have, oh, I have this technology and where can this technology fit? And if you don't have a clear idea of the problem that you want to solve, 
you can run into an issue where you have multiple verticals that you're trying to achieve at the same time. And um, that can lead to lack of focus for some CEOs where they're trying to hit multiple markets. So maybe multiple indications at the same time. Um, but the technology has to vary a little bit differently. And, and the testing that you do varies a little bit differently for each indication. And so there's just this lack of focus where they can't specifically target one thing. And when there's a lack of focus, that makes everybody, you know, investors and everything nervous. I think this is, um, it's not unique to med device. I think it's its a, a common thing. Sometimes uh, folks will, will come up with, you know, a new gadget or a new app or or what have you, and they're trying to, to find a solution to apply it to. Um, but, you know, I guess perfect world or utopia would be to understand what the, the need is first and then to uh, develop an, a product based on addressing that particular need. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of chicken and the egg sometimes, but I think the point here is that if you spend all this time perfecting this technology and there's not really a clear market or a clear need for it, it's going to be a, a tough road to go. The, the, the one thing that you know we try to encourage people to do is develop a minimum viable product. And um, with that then they can figure out what, you know, what they're targeting first. And this is where I stop designing this product, you know, whether it's a medical device with hardware or like an algorithm, like when do I lock my algorithm um, to just, because you can, especially with algorithms, you can just perpetually train it and make it better and better. But at some point, if you want to get to market, you have to lock that algorithm so that you can validate the algorithm and then move forward with that. So, you know, it goes for software as a medical device and hardware as a medical device. Like there's this, um, especially if you're coming from academia or where you're, you know, doing basic research a lot and you're constantly trying to perfect your experiments and, you know, you're exploring and you're in that exploring mindset. Um, you can get into this habit of just perpetually perfecting something and never really bringing it to animals to see if it actually works in animals. I never obviously bring it into humans if you haven't brought it into animals yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've I seen this a lot. And in fact, uh, early on in my career, I, I might have even been uh, guilty of this where you kind of, you run with something, you put your head down, uh, you keep, you know, as an engineer and an inventor and an entrepreneur, you keep thinking of, you know, ways to make it better. Oh, I can add this or I can do this or I can do this. And, you know, it's easy uh, to to forget to you know to pick your head up sometimes and and to engage people who actually might be using your product and, and get their opinion um, in fact I remember uh, once we were we uh, had put our heads down we focused on a, a specific product uh, we thought we understood the needs uh, and and when we kept our heads down for many many months and, and eventually brought the product to market and um, let's just say it uh, it didn't go, it wasn't well received in the marketplace. Uh, we got some feedback like, why did you do this? What about that? What about this other thing? <laughs> and uh, would you believe that, that some of uh, the engineers, uh, we even responded with, ah, do they not understand what this would do and how this would make this better <laughs> and this sort of thing? You know, and it's that we forgot the mission, you know? 
Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that, that, you know, touches on a point of trying to talk to people outside of the people who are working on the project early on to get their feedback and be receptive to that feedback, you know? So we do a lot of, um, you know, pitch judging competitions um, for accelerators and, you know, and in that there's an application process that you go through first and you have to read through people's applications and then you have to watch their pitch. And, you know, during the pitching, we, some of them, they're more conversational type pitches. And we have to assess whether we think that the the CEO or whoever is leading the product development is coachable too. Because if they're not receptive to feedback and they're like, this is my design and this is the right way, then it's hard for anyone in an accelerator, you know, the accelerator staff, mentors, whoever, to advise that person. And it's also hard for investors to get behind that type of person because they're worried that this person's going to just go off the rails and just not not focus on the main mission. Um, and, and that involves talking to outside people and being receptive to feedback. And I guess it goes back to like our last conversation too about advisors. If you know, you're getting multiple different avenues of feedback and people have different opinions, obviously, but you have, you have to be receptive to all that and make a judgment call based upon, you know, either your knowledge or people that you trust or whatever it may be, but you still want to get as much feedback as possible from as many sources as possible. I mean, I like the, the whole idea of a minimally viable product MVP. I, I don't know how, um, how common that term is in the medical device industry. Uh, I, I think it's, it should be more common than it is, frankly. Uh, I know that that uh, oftentimes that MVP acronym or term is is used a lot in software, but I think it has a place in non-software products as well. And you know, I'll boil it down uh, in somewhat simple terms, but I think throughout the entire product development process, you're constantly iterating on your your device. You're, you're, you you want to build an MVP as quickly as possible, and that first MVP that that you construct it. You know, if it's software, it, it might just be wireframes. If it's a, uh, a hardware or mechanical type of device, it, it may be, you know, a crude, really crude prototype where you've duct taped and glued some parts and pieces together, you know, more as a proof of concept. But, it, but the whole notion of, of prototyping early and often, every time you do that, you, you should get the voice of user involved in that so that you can learn what what's good, what's not good, what needs to be improved upon, and then iterate and, and so on and so forth. So do you have any, I don't know if you have any tips or pointers on on ways companies should embrace this this notion of an MVP approach? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I kind of think that design controls helps a little bit in that. Because if you're coming up with your user requirements or customer requirements, it's called different things, different places, user needs, whatever it might be called, and your product development plan that at least gets you to focus on some clear ideas of, of what needs to be done. Um, so the product that you're developing, you have to have some kind of idea and you're trying to meet those objectives. So, you know, your user requirements or customer requirements kind of falls into your design inputs. And, and so then you're kind of having this structure around what you're doing. And if you go and make a change to those, you want to figure out why you made that change, justify that change. So that kind of puts some constraints around it so that you don't get in this perpetual cycle of, you know, changing things and tweaking things here and there. Because if you're trying to come up with explanations for why you've changed them and you have to do a bunch of documentation for that, 
that kind of halts people, which is part of the reason they're hesitant to do design controls in the first place. Yeah. They just want to keep perpetually perfecting it. But, right. you know, it, it helps them focus on getting toward the a milestone. I don't want to say the finish line because um, there's this other issue with where um, people just consider, oh, the finish line is their, like, their milestone. Um, so my regulatory approval. And then what happens is if they haven't gone through their whole plan, they don't understand that there are different milestones along the path to regulatory approval and their timelines tend to be unrealistic. So they'll say, I'm going to do R&D for a year and then I'm going to get my regulatory approval six months later. And that rarely ever, if ever <laughs> happens. And yeah. so if you don't understand the milestones that you need to achieve, one, I can tell you that, you know, working with investors and working as a judge in pitch competitions, when I see someone thinks they're going to get their regulatory approval like that, like it, it's sort of a red flag. It's like, whoa, they haven't, they haven't delved into this at all. It's, they're just guessing. Um, and, you know, the other thing is when you achieve certain milestones, it increases your value, the value of your company. And so you can go back to investors at that point and say, oh, hey, we've shown um, proof of concept and animals and the animal studies, the data look great. Um, give me more money. <laughs> you know, and so the whoever your regulatory consultant is and maybe, you know, quality people or product development people should be able to help you understand what milestones are major milestones and increase the value of your company you know because you make a little a bunch of little milestones along the way but you may have very big milestones um you know like a clinical trial and getting great data on a clinical trial is obviously a really big milestone and so whoever you know a regulatory consultant particularly should be able to advise you on this is a major milestone they're not going to probably be able to tell you like the actual financials surrounding that milestone like hey ask for like two million at this milestone that's outside of their scope but they can tell you like this is a big deal when you hit this milestone you should you know be considering talking to strategics or getting more investment capital things like that and so you know not just looking at the finish line and valuing your company based upon the finish line is actually more beneficial financially in the long run too because if you're just valuing it looking at the end one you're not considering all the little things in the the beginning and your runway might run out much faster than you expect and then you lose um you know the investors lose faith with faith in you and you lose their trust and that never bodes well for people yeah there's a there's a lot there i'd like to unpack a little bit of that um the as you were talking about the the design control framework i i was shaking my head uh in agreement um <laughs> on that to me that's that's the whole essence of design controls is the benefit of design controls and i think the concept of an mvp and iteration and design controls uh they're they're like hand and glove they they go together um you know there's i'm reminded of this um I think it's called the 110-100 rule. Have you heard of this rule before, Isabella? I haven't. Mm -mm. All right. So the my um, crude uh, uh, a summary of the 110-100 rule is 
that if you find an issue early, it'll cost you a dollar. If you find it a little bit later, it's going to cost you $10. If you find a, a, a lot later, it could cost you $100. And then later than that, 1000 and so on. So it, you know, it, it continues to increase um, exponentially over time. Um, so the embracing an MVP type of approach and iteration uh, and, and constant um, revising and testing and those sorts of things. Every time you do this, you should learn something. And the earlier you find something, uh, the, the less expensive it's going to be in the long run. Um, so, you know, put it in this and just a design control uh, framework a little bit, you know, maybe it's because I am a, a big uh, design control nerd, but anyway, um, um, like I, I want to make sure that by the time I get the verification, design verification and validation, I want to make sure that the thing that I'm going to be testing is uh, has a high confidence or high certainty that we're going to get through those stages because design verification very very late in a design and development process, and oftentimes mm-hmm. you know t- to speak timeline a little bit, design verification is usually a, a gating item for me to prepare and finalize my regulatory submission. And then design validation is also uh, just as important because that's evidence that my product meets the needs of the end user. I don't want to get to an animal study or or I shouldn't want to get to an animal study or a human study and find out that I missed it. So there's lots of little things that I should be doing way before design verification, way before design validation that are going to be less expensive. Uh, they're going to uh, be ways that I can prove that the thing works. And I, I love the to kind of come full circle to, to the, the tail end of your uh, comment a moment ago. Doing so actually increases your value at, at, along the way. If you are able to take iterations and to show and demonstrate that the product works and you have some testing to corroborate that and some evidence to corroborate that, that's going to increase investor confidence and, and probably is going to give you more opportunities to seek follow-on investments as well. Exactly. So. Yeah. And, um, you know, I guess to your point too, you do the little things along the way, especially before, you know, you get to validation and verification, your final one. But like, you know, for validation purposes, that's sort of going back to what we were talking about with user needs too, because you want people who are going to be using this device to be able to use the device and for it to be intuitive to them, not to the engineer. So, you know, there's a whole um, framework for human factors engineering and, you know, usability testing along the way. So you get folks to come in and you ask them questions about the design and, you know, have open feedback of kind of one route. And then you can do, you know, sort of what they call formative evaluations where you can sort of set up a simulation and, you know, have them run through it and figure out where their errors are so that when you get to that final validation, there aren't user errors associated with it. Um, but that's a whole thing that that's a whole different topic that we could just go at oh, yeah. into, but just at For a sure. high level. That, you know, one thing that I think people don't consider early on um, in their product development, they um, don't go into the user testing as much as they should. Um, and then when you run into problems with, you know, user validation at the end, um, yeah. that's a real pain because you have to go back and make a whole bunch of changes. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, you, you, you do a verification test and, you know, I'll just pick a, 
like biocompatibility, for example, if that's something that if you have a patient contact and material, mm -hmm. if you don't do some some core basic things in advance and you find out uh, that, uh, you know, one of your biocompatibility tests fail and you have to change a material. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's like going back to the beginning okay. <laughs> more than it's not. And, and the same thing from an animal study or a clinical study. I mean, th these are very, very late in the game to find out something isn't going to go the way you thought. And folks, I'm here to tell you, I never had a medical device project ever in the history of my career that went the way that I thought. Uh, so there will be twists and turns and pivots that are going to come up. You should just anticipate those uh, and realize that there's things that you can do. MVP is one, but you know, just the iteration concept is, is key. Uh, and getting the end users involved early and often is another that's going to help uh, prevent or at least identify what those bumps and pivots and twists and turns are going to be sooner rather than later. Isabel, I thought we could, uh, well, before we dive into the, the balance of the conversation, I want to remind folks I'm talking to Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is with Proxima Clinical Research. Great resource uh, to reach out to. Uh, just go to proximacro.com. Uh, as we uh, heard a little bit ago, uh, they're doing work for all sorts and shapes and sizes of company from startups to to very, very large companies, but they're here to help you with regulatory consulting and, and clinical research solutions. So again, uh, check out what they're doing. Go to proximacro.com. And, you know, we talked about design controls a minute ago and, and quality systems as well. Yeah, that's something that's near and dear to me and to us here at Greenlight Guru. We're here to help you. We've built the only medical device quality management software solution in the market. It's actually designed for medical device professionals by actual medical device professionals. And, um, you know, we're winning awards. We're, we're working with companies all over the globe to really help streamline their ISO certification process, FDA inspections, help them breeze through the design and development process as much as possible. And which makes, you know, regulatory submissions such as 510Ks and tech files a little bit easier as well. So if you'd like to learn more about how we can help you, go to www.greenlight.guru. All right. So we, we sort of start... We, we, I don't know that we went on a tangent. I think everything we've covered is good, but... Um, <laughs> we strayed a little bit, but yeah. Well, let's, let's but, pull yeah, it back. I think it's relevant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's pull it back into why is all of this important from a regulatory perspective or, or maybe a, a, a slightly different way to ask the question is... Why would a regulatory person like yourself or me, why would all this be important knowing that at some point in time, we're probably going to have to go down some sort of regulatory path, some sort of submission? How is all this relevant to that? Ultimately, I guess it is true that one of the biggest milestones is the regulatory approval. And so if you're trying, especially if you have a sort of a technology that... Um, that can hit multiple indications. Um, so I guess shifting a little bit real quick, um, there are technologies that are quote unquote platform technologies. And while you do want to have a focus for those technologies, you don't want to ignore the fact that you do have a platform technology. So, you know, that does increase your valuation for investors. Um, if you have a technology that has a large potential, but you don't want to talk about having a platform technology unless you actually do have a platform technology. So if you have like a canister that can collect blood and gas and poop or whatever it might be, that's not really a platform technology. You want to, it's a technology like maybe it's a, a 
gene, you know, sequencing type of technology. Um, that's an in vitro diagnostic. And you just change a primer and then you can, you know, perform multiple tests. You still want to focus on one test, but, you know, to start off with, but you can be aware and make others aware that you have, you know, a pipeline of multiple tests. Um, so getting back to your question, so if you have this type of platform technology, say, where you have multiple tests, the tests that you pick, um, so say you pick, um, and I'm just throwing this out here, I haven't actually done the background research on this one, so, um, but I'm assuming HIV is a pretty big, if you make a diagnostic claim for HIV, that's a pretty big deal. Whereas yeah. if you make a diagnostic claim for the flu, you might be class two. Right. Um, so, you know, class three, HIV, class two, flu. So if you pick HIV, you're going PMA route, most likely. And so that is a lengthier route than if you went 510K. And so you want to make sure that if you're picking a PMA route, that your marketability justifies that because you're going to have a lot more testing that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do clinical trials. And so you're going to have to raise more money. And so is the the market share, you know, the, the market, the total market for HIV large enough to justify that. Now, that's not to say that, you know, if it's a passion project, you don't move forward with that as long as you can get the funds maybe from grants or something. But from, I guess, an investor standpoint, um, they're looking at, you know, the end goal, um, the bottom line, which is how much money can I make off of my investment? Um, and so, you know, you want to make sure that your regulatory pathway, that you're not just picking an indication, um, that's interesting to you, but is going to have this major regulatory burden associated with it. And there's no market to justify that from an investor standpoint. Um, by the same token, you don't want to pick a really easy regulatory pathway, but there's no market. Nobody's interested in this. There's no need for this, you know, test or device out there. It doesn't really make sense. So you don't want to pick that just because it's easy either. And so, you know, you want to understand, hey, this is the regulatory pathway for this device. Um, and this is the market for this device. This is a regulatory pathway for, you know, device two. And this is the market for that. And then make an assessment of, you know, the, the pros and cons of both of those. Um, the amount of money you're going to have to raise, the amount of money you're going to make that type of thing to make that decision. Because if you make a decision, you know, and your regulatory pathway is a lot heavier than you saw, and you're going to investors and you're saying the wrong thing, that's also going to, you know, discredit you. Um, and it's going to make you harder, harder for you to raise money in the future. And if you go forward with an application thinking everything's great, and you haven't considered really talking to the FDA or a regulatory consultant early on, um, and you get, you know, an NSE, um, which is not substantial equivalent or something of that nature. And they're like, you need to go do a PMA. That's a huge deal. That's a ton of money that you have to raise after that. So you just want to consider all of that when you're making this assessment. And you want to consider reimbursement along with your regulatory as well, because that will help you, you know, figure out um, not only what indication you want to target, um, from a financial perspective, but what does your clinical trial need to look like? Maybe you can, you know, do one trial that covers reimbursement and, you know, your regulatory burden. Um, or do you want to separate those because maybe reimbursement so much more? Um, and you, you know, regulatory approval is your milestone. So those are all the types of things that you want to consider in this bigger picture 
um, because these are all sort of strategic elements into the, the overall business, you know. So it's not just the market. It's what does it take to get me onto the market? And then once I'm on the market, how am I getting money from there? You know, reimbursement, sales, things of that nature. Yeah, I think that's there's a lot of good stuff there. And, um, you know, because I, I hear folks all the time, they'll be like, oh, uh, I, well, actually, I had a conversation with somebody today. They they claim that their product is not a medical device, and and I read what their what they claim the product does, and I did I, I did I spent five minutes on the FDA website. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It seems like a medical device to me. And in fact, it seems like a class two medical device. But there's nuances to this. I mean, it, it this is why um, understanding what problem you're trying to solve at the beginning uh, is going to inform your regulatory strategy. And there's, there's, I mean, there's lots of ways to do this, folks. So there's not a one size fits all. It really is, a, I think, in some respects about your appetite. Um, I think it's about the investment climate. I think it's about the, the market opportunities. Uh, so there's lots of factors that weigh in. But there could be a path where you say, I want to go down this path because it's, quote, easier from a regulatory perspective. Um, but to kind of uh, recap what, what Isabella is sharing, if there's not a market for that thing that you're going to go down this easy path, there's not a market for it, is it worth going down that path? Conversely, if, if this really cool thing that you're doing, you know, but it's, there's five people who would ever use this product... Uh, and, it, and it's going to require PMA, that's another thing you have to factor in. So lots of twists and turns here. This is why you should reach out to somebody like Isabella and, and Proxima Clinical Research because they can help you build that regulatory strategy for all these different scenarios. Um, conversely, I've also seen a lot of companies that are like, we want this, this super special indication for use, which is going to put us in a PMA bucket. Class 3 is going to require a clinical trial. But there's a different indication that we can target first where there still is a sizable market that makes us a class two. So they'll go down that path first, get the clearance and then use that as, as supporting evidence to inform, you know, additional indications for use downstream. So again, there's lots of different variations on this. All of them are possible, but, but I think the, to boil it down to, to one summary statement, uh, understand the business ramifications for and against the decisions that you make and use your regulatory strategy to help inform that. You know, part of it too, um, when you're thinking of, you know, one other thing is to think about the markets that you're going to target. Um, you know, are you going to go to the US first or the EU first? Um, you know, in the past, people used to go to the EU um, prior to the US because it was known to be a little bit easier um, to get through regulatory approval there. Obviously, now that's not quite the case. Um, you know, and then, pre- you know, uh, we, now we have people coming in through, um, like I mentioned before to you, the FDA to learn about what they might need to do for the EU. Um, so it's kind of shifted. So understanding the regulatory landscape and the markets that you're targeting is important too, because you made a choice to go to the EU first now based upon you know past um, information, you might be held up longer than if you had targeted the US first. Um, so that's just another sort of element to consider into the, the bigger picture of, of where you target your regulatory, um, you know, what markets you're targeting for regulatory and for selling. Um, you want to be able to justify all of that. Yeah. And let me qualify when uh, Isabella says easier. 
um, don't hear that it's easy. Um, uh, hear that it's more predictable. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of elaborate on that, I, I had a different conversation with a company a couple weeks ago and, you know, they're new to medical device, they're a startup. And, you know, I, I do applaud them because they've done their homework. They know the importance of a regulatory strategy. They know the importance of building a QMS. They understand enough about design controls to know how important that is to inform uh, the design and development and risk and all those sorts of things. And, you know, they're like, oh, we want to be to market in the U.S., the EU and Canada uh, by end of this year. And I'm like, well, okay. Well, and so I asked a couple of clarifying questions to find out where they are in that process. You know, are they at the very beginning? Or are they somewhere in the middle? But then I explained, I was like, you know, that, that time frame is probably not realistic in the EU uh, today because of all the things that are happening with the, the EU MDR. Uh, it's maybe doable in Canada, but Canada, you know, you're going to have to get MDSAP and ISO certified, which, you know, there's a little bit of a backlog there. And, and I said, you know, it's probably your fastest path to market for their technology is going to be the U.S. Now, your situation might be different, of course, but understand the the all the things that are happening in uh, the different markets that you're going to go in because, you know, three years ago, four years ago, heck, maybe even just a couple years ago, the EU might have been a faster path, but that's probably not the case for just about anything medical device related these days. US is probably going to be faster than the EU, not in all cases, but in most cases. So the, it certainly has flipped on itself. All right. Definitely. Faster is probably a better word than easier. That's, yeah, that's the uh, best word I think. Yeah, and, and but even but even uh, fast sometimes people are like oh I got a prototype uh, I should be able to to sell it tomorrow you know it's like uh, all right so uh, folks be open if you're if you're in this situation just be open to listening to people like Isabella listening to people like me we've done this many 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 times um, we're not idiots on the topic of quality and regulatory so we're here to help you we want you to be successful uh, so Isabella any other thoughts uh, to kind of wrap up this conversation about how important regulatory is and, and fundraising and beyond yeah I think that maybe the the bottom line here is to understand what you are targeting so having that focus because it and you can take regulatory into consideration in in that focus um, but if you can't give even a few different options for focus, it makes it difficult for any regulatory person to give you, you know, a timeline of, you know, a plan um, for what's likely to be expected when you should go in front of the FDA. So all of these things really boil down to understanding what it, what your main goal is and moving forward to achieving that goal and being able to convey that to um, investors, accelerators, different audiences, whoever it may be that um, you're trying to get some sort of value proposition out there to them and, you know, make yourself, um, make your company look like it's going to meet its milestones, give yourself some integrity um, so that you can say with confidence, this is our timeline and you're not going to go back and shift it a million different times because you're trying to rush things through. Um, and trying to focus on too many things at once. Um, so having that focus and really putting forth a plan that involves regulatory and quality and product development all into one um, will help 
gain confidence overall. Absolutely. Well, Isabella, once again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights on these important topics for, for frankly, I mean, I know we said at the beginning, this might be skewed to a, a startup, but this was, this was uh, ubiquitous across all shapes and sizes of medical device company, because even within a, a well-established company that's been in business for decades, that has a whole portfolio of products, you still have quote investors within your organization. You probably have processes where you have to go through different stages or phases in order to get additional resources and funding for those projects. So this, this methodology, these tips, these pointers that we shared with you are definitely applicable in your world too. So I, I hope you found something worthwhile. Again, folks, check out what Proxima Clinical Research is doing and, and how they might be a resource to help you. Uh, go to proxmacro.com to learn more. As always, uh, thank you so much for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first episode, welcome. There's hundreds, uh, well over 100 episodes that uh, you can listen to as well. And, and, and if you've been a, a loyal listener for a while, again, thank you as well. Be sure to share uh, news about the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry with your friends and coworkers. And uh, until next time, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear.